0: This is the Seattle Astronomy Podcast. I'm Greg Scheiderer, your host. I'm also the writer of the Seattle Astronomy blog at SeattleAstronomy.com. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Ethan Siegel. Readers of Seattle Astronomy may know him from our coverage of several of his lectures, including two at Rose City Astronomers in Portland and one earlier this spring at Astronomy on Tap Seattle. Ethan is the author of Beyond the Galaxy, How Humanity Looked Beyond Our Milky Way and Discovered the Entire Universe. You may have also seen his writing on NASA Space Place, and he's the writer of the Starts with a Bang blog on Forbes. Ethan's new book, Trechnology: The Science of Star Trek from Tricorders to Warp Drive, is coming out next month. Ethan, uh, why don't you just uh, start out by telling me a little bit about the origins of Treknology? I imagine that taking on a project like this means you're something of a Star Trek fan.
1: You know that 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 kind of goes as a given. I think I think anyone who's interested in the universe, who's curious about the universe, and who sort of goes through a childhood where they're fascinated by the world around them and learning about this. When they're first exposed to Star Trek, you know, and and by first exposed, I mean when you start seeing the good episodes of Star Trek, you you start really um, sort of expanding your view of of what envisioning the future looks like. For me, it was it was just fascinating being introduced to uh, the next generation. Um, you know, I had watched it a little bit in my preteen years when it first, you know, started to come out and I didn't really get into it. But, but around age 13 or 14, I started watching it and I was really fascinated not only by, you know, the future that they had envisioned, but how some of the same struggles that humanity was encountering today were being played out in a 23rd, 24th century context where you're asking these big ethical and moral questions about what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to um, to do the right thing when you're placed into this situation where, you know, do you defend your friends? Do you let your friends suffer their own fate? Do you, do you save this person against their own will? Do you do you do something unethical to a small group of people to do something life-saving to a large group of people? And and these are complicated questions, and wrestling with those questions in a context where where I felt we were exploring, like, the vast corners of the galaxy and the universe and what's physically possible, that was what got me hooked. So as a grown-up now, when I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, I start looking at, okay, what are all the technologies out there that Star Trek has envisioned, and Look, this is 50 years, 51 years now since the premiere of the original Star Trek and 30 years since the premiere of Next Generation. These technologies that were so futuristic, they were imagined centuries in the future, some of them don't appear to be that far off. Some of them are already here and in widespread use. And others that we thought, you know, just a few years ago were going to be far future technologies... Look like they're coming to fruition. So I think that intersection of an interest in Star Trek and sci-fi, um, of an interest in what it means for humanity, and a knowledge of physics—all um, of those have really come together to make this book possible. Yeah,
0: and it's great. I think that you know they were able to accomplish all of those things that you're talking about, and still keep it a fun show and adventure show, and not too preachy either.
1: I don't think it came off as preachy at all. I think it it presented dilemmas, and you got to watch characters make the decisions that they made, and then deal with the consequences that they dealt with. I think it's wonderful that they don't always make the right decision. They don't always do the smart thing. They don't. Sometimes they do the expedient thing. Sometimes they they do like what the letter of the law says, even though there are big consequences. Sometimes they violate the letter of the law to adhere to its spirit, and sometimes there are. Consequences consequences for that, too. I don't think things are very cut and dry in the Star Trek universe, just like they aren't in real life.
0: Uh, You mentioned that uh, uh, Next Generation was kind of your intro. What's your, your
1: favorite of the series? Do you have one? Um, you know, at the risk of alienating anyone whose favorite isn't the same as mine, I, I do think The Next Generation still holds as my favorite. I like Deep Space Nine a lot. I have a special place for the original series. And, and Voyager and even Enterprise all had their very bright spots for me. So I'm I'm really looking forward to Discovery, which is coming out. Um, well, probably by time this episode airs, the first episodes will be out already. So I'm yeah. definitely looking forward to that.
0: Do you have a particular character that's that's a favorite?
1: Um, I did. I did at various points through my life, but I would say now as a as a grown adult man, I would say the the character that I, I have the most respect for is probably Captain Picard. That Captain Picard is really what I think uh, everyone wishes they had as their dad. Was was Captain Picard because that that guiding force, that that moral center, that 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 person who's hell bent on doing the right thing for all of his crew and all of the starship and all of Starfleet. I think he's really the quintessential ambassador for for everything that the idealism of Star Trek embodies.
0: I was a Spock guy myself as a, a kid watching the original series probably not uh, so much when it was first out but when it started getting syndicated and uh, it, just the the logic and
1: the science and and the problem solving uh, it was really attracted to Spock. And that's great. I think I think it's wonderful how, you know, Star Trek can also help us take the alien, the foreign to us, and make us relate to it. I remember uh, having a soft spot for Data, even though I wasn't really certain that Data was actually alive, uh, for sort of those same reasons. Yeah, neither was he, was he? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk a little
0: bit about the book. You look at a whole bunch of technology. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, what's in there.
1: Well, so we break it down into a bunch of different sections and we we take a look at what's necessary for starship technologies and we look at things like warp drives and impulse engines and tractor beams and and the transporter and these are these are some real intricate starship technologies that are necessary for the functioning of the ship. We look at the military and the weapons system. We look at things like phasers and photon torpedoes and 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 it's incredible how these these super destructive technologies can also be used in the right circumstances as non destructive technologies. That the phaser isn't just some super powered kill burn a hole in you weapon. It's it's something that can disable you, that can stun you without harming you. That it can also be you know relatively delicate in that regard. Um, We also explore communications, we also explore computational advances, we explore medical and biological advances, so we look at things like subspace communications, uh, Star Trek communicators. We look at things like pads and isolinear chips and we look at technologies like the hypospray or the tricorder or cybernetic implants and and these are all fascinating things to look at. Many of them are closer to reality than most people realize. All told we have 28 different technologies that are each featured with their own chapter in my book Trechnology.
0: So uh, is there one in particular that, like, they nailed that, uh, you know, uh, that are they're already true?
1: There are there are actually a few that are already true. You know, some of them are, are so easily and profoundly true that we don't even really think about that as being a futuristic technology because they've been around for so long. You know, when you take a look at something like, oh, let's say... When you take a look at um, what's a good one how about uh sliding doors when you take a look at sliding doors you get those every time you walk into a grocery store you take a look, you you experience those every time you walk into an airport these vertical automatic sliding doors we, we don't even register that these are these are futuristic like no these things have been in widespread use for a a generation or more now so we don't even think about that when you take a look at pads you know what you've got in your smartphone is much more impressive than anything that were on those touchscreen pads that star trek envisioned and and here we are with something that's smaller that's more compact um When you look at something like the ship's computer, they talked about like, oh, like it has all these servers and all these storage spaces and all these things like that. They couldn't envision a decentralized place like an Internet, um, which is what everyone has. You don't need these ultra powerful computers just on board everywhere you go. You can have you can have something that just connects you to, you know, a, a giant network of computational power and so I think particularly in the computing fashion, in the computing faction, uh, we've gone way beyond what Star Trek would have envisioned much more quickly than anything that came about in the original series where you have to remember when that came out the most powerful computer was less powerful than a pocket calculator today and it took up the size of a room. Yeah. Um, from Star Trek until the Star Trek The Next Generation, they realized, like, oh, we need something new. We need something fancy. I know. How about digital storage? And we'll make these chips, and we'll we'll move them around, and that'll be what we do. Well, well your flash drive is more powerful than a Star Trek isolinear chip, and no one looks at their flash drive as, this is the pinnacle of technological achievement. This is just a little rinky-dink accessory. So, um you know i think i think as far as computation goes ships computer pads isolinear chips we've we've blown away what star trek would have envisioned we're still a little bit away from human like androids and the holodeck and tangible holograms so we're we're still got a way to go for that i think I think Voyager did a very good job of of showcasing. Okay, like now that we're entering the information age, we've got uh, we've got some real like complex things we're gonna make happen like when when the doctor holographically created artificial lungs in Neelix when he <laughs> when when he had his lungs like stolen from him by an organ, har- har- organ harvesting race because their race was dying and they were experimenting on organs from various species they uh that that was something that I think technology has a way to go before we're we're you know holographically projecting artificial lungs but another one that's totally become real you know we took a look at replicators when that showed up on star trek the next generation and what a futuristic invention that you could replicate anything you were looking for that that any device you wanted that you could just have this you know have it constructed for you on the spot to whatever level of detail you want. We have 3D printers that are making huge strides towards that in in many ways that's already a reality and and that's that's just absolutely fascinating and mind-blowing to me. Um, So those I think are are some of the technologies that have already come to fruition that are just that are just outstanding.
0: Yeah. The 3D printer really blows me away. I did a, a, a little event for viewing of the Mercury transit a year or so ago. And uh, one kid, you know, he's in college. He was like 19. He brought his telescope that he made entirely of 3D printed components, like, uh, except for the mirror, of course. But everything <laughs> else was printed. And it's like, this is amazing. I, you know, I can't believe what you can do these days. It's pretty cool.
1: It's really cool, and to such precision, too. Like, the, the the longer you're willing to print for and the better a printer you can get, the the tighter and tighter resolution you can get. You're talking, uh, I think in some cases, resolutions down to like 20 nanometer accuracy. That's pretty good for most applications, isn't it? <laughs> I, I would think so. I would think so.
0: Uh, the one that always tickles me, especially when I watch uh, uh, an episode of the original series, is that Uhura had a Bluetooth uh, earpiece uh, <laughs> way before the rest of us, you know, 50 years in advance. You know, a little
1: bigger than most, but uh, there it is. So that might have been one of the first things that they got. It could have been. You know, the universal translator was the whole big thing of that, because they they didn't really have universal translation um you know on the fly like that they they had to have something go through an earpiece and if you look at the prequel series enterprise like that was the main function of a communications officer a communications officer was was an expert in these languages was an expert in in understanding things that had not yet been decoded universal translators now i mean they're In many ways, they're already here. You know, you can not only hit Google Translate on on pretty much any web page in any language and translate it into any other language, but they have speech recognition software that can do language processing where they take the speech in a foreign language, they translate it in near real time into any other language, and then they audibly can feed it into an earpiece. So what Uhura is wearing on her ear is actually larger than an entire universal translation system today. It's amazing, just amazing. So uh, do you cover anything in the
0: book where uh, we look at it and say, yeah, that's never gonna happen. That well, that was just that was just fiction.
1: Well, there there are some things that I'll say, because I, I, I have to look at it from an optimistic point of view. I, I can't I can't just say, well, here's the physics we know. This is not possible with the physics we know. Garbage. Garbage, garbage, garbage. I don't wanna be the one to say that. What I'd rather say is, okay, here's what the laws of physics currently say. Here's what the technology requires in order to work. Because there's a difference between the technology as Star Trek envisions it working and the technology of... How can this practically work in the universe? You don't expect Star Trek to get all the details right. And if you read the books like they have, they have Star Trek technical manuals out there. I mean, some of them are are really fascinating with the... And some of them are very humorous with uh, with how things work. My, my favorite was when they came to the transporters and they said, you know, okay, so we know that matter is uncertain in its position and momentum. So we need some sort of Heisenberg compensator, right? For the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Mm -hmm. And someone asks like, well, how do the Heisenberg compensators work? And the answer is they work very well. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I I don't want to do that. I don't want to give a non answer like that. So for something like warp drive, um the the idea that star trek had of how warp drive worked is maybe not is maybe not the actual way that warp drive could ever work but in 1994 there was a theoretical physicist named miguel alcubierre and what he discovered is within general relativity which is our theory of gravity um there exists a solution where if you set up the right conditions in your space time, you can compress the space in front of you by expanding the space behind you. So as you move forward through the compressed space and 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 behind you the space expands so that you wind up with the same total amount of space. you can actually traverse the dis- the different distance between point a and point B faster, then you could just send a photon, a beam of light, from point A to point B without compressing that space. Because if you move forward and you have that compressed space in front of you, that's a way to effectively go from point A to point B faster than you would normally consider traveling at the speed of light. So is that mathematically possible? Yes. Now you ask, is it physically possible in our universe? Because there's a difference between math and physics, right? This is the same as the difference between if I said to you, hey, what's the square root of 4? And you said 2. And I said, are you sure? And you said, okay, now I don't know. I thought it was 2, but maybe I'm not sure. And I'll say in math, it could be 2 or it could be negative 2. And you'll go, oh, yeah, plus Mm -hmm. or minus. In physics, there's only one right answer. If I said, hey, I've got my physical system and here's how I got four and we took the square root of it, what's the answer? The answer is either going to be plus two or it's going to be minus two. It's not either or. So in this universe, can you have that space time? And the answer is, it depends on if you can either have negative gravitational mass or a negative energy. And if you can, then great we can build warp drive if that's a physical impossibility and we haven't discovered anything like that yet. But if that's a physical impossibility, then then I don't know how warp drive could be possible. And there are a few technologies like that that, that I think would require extensions to the laws of physics as we currently understand them. Warp drive is one, subspace communication is one, uh, the transporter is another.
0: I was gonna gonna bring up transporters because that's the one I want. I just want to be you know over there right now, but uh, that seems like a, a pretty difficult thing to accomplish.
1: Well, it it is a pretty difficult thing to accomplish, but I actually have a bigger uh, ethical concern with transporters mm-hmm. that that they only kind of gloss over in the Star Trek series, and that is, if I if even if I could take you, and I could take. A scan of the quantum information in all of the particles that make you up and I would disassemble you and reassemble, even if it were the same particles, although it shouldn't matter, if I could disassemble the same particles in the same quantum state in a different location and I could reanimate you and make you come back, that thing that existed would have all of your thoughts, all of your memories, your entire body, It would be indistinguishable to you from, to you, for an outside observer. But what about you? Would that you, the person you are now that you have been for your entire life, would that person cease to exist the moment I disassembled you? And would that person then be a newly created person when the transport was complete? The person arriving, the person being created would never know. But would you, the original you, have ceased to exist? I, I look at it as, this is the difference between cut and paste and the difference between copy, paste, delete.
0: <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Or cut and paste, 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 and three of me shows up somewhere. That,
1: no, yeah, another possibility, right? We, we've had duplicate problems on Star Trek before. <laughs> Just ask Will Riker. And don't ask me which Will Riker, <laughs> if we're, we're going by the one who goes by Thomas or the one who goes by Will.
0: Yeah, or or the uh, evil Spock with a beard from the other universe. Or oh, there's a different the whole, question th- there's there. There's yeah, whole but...
1: other universe. <laughs> <laughs> So
0: uh, uh, you know, back to Warp Drive, that's part of the subtitle of the book, and most people say, ah, poppycock, but there, there's actually a guy at NASA, I guess, Sonny White, who's tinkering with the idea. How would you make this work? And other uh, questions of just going faster to get somewhere. So uh, interesting to see how, how people wrestle with that question you, you bring up of how to make it actually happen physically.
1: Yeah, I mean the the whole thing is, you know, you you've heard of zero point energy. Right. This is, this is, if you have any system itself and you, you bring it down to its lowest possible energy state, that's what we call the zero-point energy. And one of the bizarre things of quantum physics is when you go down to the lowest energy state you can possibly have, even for empty space itself, you take all the matter and radiation out of there and you have empty space, and you say, what's the zero-point energy of empty space? It's not zero it's a positive non-zero value. This is this is a bizarre thing that that frustrates us and we don't understand. Well, what we would need to have warp drive is we'd need to go below that zero point energy itself. We would need to have the Alcubierre drive work. We'd need the creation of a region of space with an energy that's less than the zero point energy of space itself. And in order to do that, we need some type of negative mass or negative energy to exist. Um, but that might happen. We, we know something like the Casimir effect where you have two parallel conducting plates. If you, if you have two parallel conducting plates in a vacuum, the space between those plates Reduce has a reduced effective zero-point energy for the space inside the plates compared to the space outside the plates. So it's possible to say, you know, maybe there is some clever physical setup you can enact that would provide the required energy conditions. Mind-boggling. So, lots of research to be done yeah. still, um, but this is, this is probably one of the most difficult technologies to achieve, but I still don't want to rule it out and say it's impossible. I want to look at what it would take to make it possible. All right, well,
0: I think that answers all the questions I had, unless there's something else you'd like to say about the book that I haven't thought to ask about.
1: Well, one of the things that's really fascinated me cuz you know for me my expertise is physics and astronomy. That's that's my that's my bread and butter if you will. Um but what I've been fascinated with is learning about the medical and biological and civilian technologies that might actually come about like not just way down the road, but in the near-term future. That was a big learning experience for me, and some of the most fascinating things that I found were actually in those arenas. Um, synthahol, a non-alcohol substitute that gives you all of the positive effects of alcohol, the, the feeling of euphoria, the increased confidence, the, the lowering of inhibitions all there without any of the negative effects without dehydration or nausea or dizziness or the loss of memory or brain cells death or hangovers if you could get rid of all of that wouldn't that be great well it turns out that we've identified which receptors in the human body um, cause those trigger those feelings we've identified different subunits on those receptors so we can say oh can we design a molecule that will trigger these set of receptors and not these other sets and so we've got a combination of different types of drugs in a in a class of drugs that actually binds to some of those receptors and not others and we've got a class of inhibitors that will inhibit the drug from binding to the receptors and we even have a cure. We have an antidote to this type of intoxication where where you can take a pill or you can drink some solution, and when that gets into your bloodstream, it it stops this drug from binding to that and you go right back to normal. So synthahol is on track pharmacologically to become real. Also on the track to become real, um, Jordy's visor. Oh. Which which was an incredible find to me. I had thought that this was just, you know, real science fiction. Because the way they have it on Star Trek is he's got these implants in his temples. He hooks the visor up to his temple. He can see all across the electromagnetic spectrum. And it just sends signals through his optic nerves to his brain. And he can see. Uh, and this is famously hacked in Star Trek Generations, where where the Klingons hack his visor, can see what he sees, get the codes to the Enterprise shields, and take it down. Um, which, which brings up a real ethical thing about not just visors, but any type of cybernetic implant. Um, is this open to being hacked, and what would that mean? But the thing I found fascinating about the visor is the current technology is such that Um, you don't even need an optic nerve or eyes at all to be able to see. What we found is if we can make an implant somewhere in, say, your brain's visual cortex, and we can wirelessly feed an external signal to that implant, we can restore sight even to someone who has none of the biological materials to to have eyes this is a potential way to restore sight to the blind fascinating to me
0: how science fiction has so often come up with those kinds of solutions that turn
1: out to be possible and useful later on What I found fascinating is the first um, the first tool that was used to to successfully aid vision impaired people, people who were legally blind to be able to see and read and do things like that was developed at NASA in the late 90s. And it was called JORDY, J-O-R-D-Y. (laughs) Got to
0: love their acronyms, too. What does what does JORDY stand for?
1: Oh boy. Okay, I can remember this. JORDY stands for um JORDY stands for joint optical reflective display. So J O R D and then the end of the Y at display is the Y. So joint optical reflective display is JORDY. Nice. Well, Ethan, thanks so
0: much for being on the podcast. Uh, We're looking forward to Trechnology, which
1: comes out next month. October 15th is the debut date. You can pre-order on Amazon today. And uh, if you're interested in in meeting me and having it signed, I'll be at conventions and hopefully bookstores uh, across the country.
0: Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. And if uh, you pop into Seattle on that tour, we'll definitely come by.
1: All right. Well, hopefully I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Ethan. (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Ethan Siegel, author of the new book, Treknology, The Science of Star Trek, From Tricorders to Warp Drive. Again, the book is due out October 15th, and you can pre-order it on Amazon.com. There's a link to its Amazon page on the blog post that accompanies this podcast on SeattleAstronomy.com. That's it for this episode of the Seattle Astronomy Podcast. Keep up with day-to-day news on our blog, find astronomy events on our calendar, and check out our maps of recommended stargazing sites. It's all at seattleastronomy.com. Seattle Astronomy is supported by contributions through Patreon. We thank our supporters at the executive producer level or above, Cloud Break Optics and Ballard. To become a patron, visit Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Seattle Astronomy. The Seattle Astronomy Podcast is copyright 2017 by Seattle Astronomy. Our theme music is Aboard the Alien Craft from the album Symphony for Spaceman by Steve Combs and Delta Is. It's on freemusicarchive.org and is used under a Creative Commons attribution license. I'm Greg Scheiderer, wishing you clear skies. Thanks for listening.